0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 230 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast and today's guest is Erin Reedy. She's a dedicated dysphagia researcher and clinical speech-language pathologist and board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders who is passionate about evidence-based practice and best patient outcomes in the areas of swallowing and swallowing disorders Erin is currently a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Bonnie martin Harris's Swallowing Cross-Systems Collaborative Lab and is also affiliated with Dr. Pandolfino in the Esophageal Function Lab at Northwestern University. She has 12 years of clinical experience and wants to contribute to the evidence that supports swallowing as a continuum and to promote and work towards research that involves the multimodal assessment of swallowing, as well as to help facilitate collaboration across medical specialties. And I just love this episode so much, as I'm sure you all will. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile-fused business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely.
1: Good morning, Erin. Good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right. So
2: tell the people a little bit about yourself.
1: So I am um, Dr. Erin Reidy. I graduated from MUSC with my PhD in August of 2021. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow um, at Northwestern University working with Dr. Martin Harris in her lab, and I'm also affiliated with the esophageal function lab working with Dr. Fandofino. I, previous to my PhD transition, was a full-time um, clinical medical SLP, working mostly in acute care with adult patients. Um, and I additionally kept up my clinical practice when I'm, I was in um, my PhD. So I worked in acute care when I was at MUSC, and I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome.
2: I would I would love to hear totally just off the cuff, Erin, what made you yeah. want to go back? You know, I know you were so entrenched in clinical life. And what just, yeah. what sparked you to say, I need to go back and do my PhD? <laughs>
1: It's on it, like going back for some type of a terminal degree, so a PhD or a clinical doctorate was, was always something that I had thought about as early as like during my clinical fellowship and, you know, life happens. And so you kind of just, you know, find yourself several years later being like, wow, I've already been doing this for, you know, four or five, six years, what have you. But my last full-time clinical job, um, i Part of what we did was we saw outpatients for modified brain swallow studies, and our basically primary referral sources were ENT and GI. And where I was practicing at the time, there weren't really like laryngologists or GI esophagologists who were really readily available to a lot of our patients. Um, And so we were getting a lot of these outpatients with really vague complaints of swallowing issues, Um, a lot of Globus, um, a lot of them who might have had some type of, you know, reflux testing, or they might have had an esophagram, or maybe no testing at all. And just going off of the sheer complaint of I have trouble swallowing, they found their way to us. There were essentially, they had very functional swallows, they weren't quite normal, but they really weren't pathologic, it wasn't anything that we could really say that they needed therapy for. Um, But you definitely got the sense that there wasn't something that was quite right about it, or quite normal. And even at the end of the day, these patients are symptomatic, right? So something is for them not normal. And I think that's a really important distinction to to make. Um, And so I, I just kind of took that as an opportunity to just get into the literature and kind of figure out what's out there. And I mean, you and I both know what it's like working as a clinician. There's only so much available to you. We even had a librarian and there was there was only so much available that I could kind of get from that. It's different when someone else is doing a search for you. And I just felt like, well, there's got to be more information out there about how different aspects of swallowing mouth to stomach are related and there really wasn't there really wasn't enough for me at least to make a case for why I was sending someone back to a GI or sending someone back to an ENT and saying this really isn't you know anything that I can sort of help with I can maybe facilitate next steps but it's it's kind of it's kind of not what I'm capable of you know of doing and i i couldn't find a lot of that literature i couldn't really find a lot of it and so instead of just kind of being frustrated with that i decided well i guess someone has to be the person to ask the questions. And I guess why not me? <laughs> and so it was a multi-year process for me to really kind of just get everything in order and, um, you know, get letters of recommendation. I had to take the GRE again, because after five years, it says if you never took it, your scores are wiped, it's just gone. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> um, and um and then I applied to one PhD program. Um, really took a gamble there. Um, but I had a wonderful first meeting with Dr. Heather Bonia, who would later become my PhD mentor at MUSC. And that's that's how I got started on awesome. um on on transitioning my career from a, a primary clinician to a researcher. Awesome. And now you're working with Dr. martin Harris at Northwestern. I know, I can't quite believe it sometimes. I, I have to kind of like pinch myself to ask if it's real life
2: so yeah how cool awesome thank you for sharing that Erin that was great yeah
1: all right so let's
2: get into it so what do you what do you want to dive into today
1: well you had asked me for a couple things that I'm really like passionate about and so one of those things is essentially what sort of got me started on this journey and what I ended up researching for my dissertation and, and essentially what I'm I'm um, learning more about and researching now as a postdoc is that swallowing is a continuum. So swallowing is something that occurs mouth to stomach. And because of how swallowing diagnostics and and the subspecialties of swallowing disorder have kind of worked themselves out. So there's speech pathologists, there's ENTs, and further than that, there's laryngologists. And there's GI physicians. And further than that, there's esophagologists. Um, And some laryngologists also practice as esophagologists. But there really aren't a lot of people. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are definitely people out there. But really aren't a lot of people who are looking at the, the continuum as it exists, mouth to stomach. And there is no single diagnostic test. That you can get everything except for maybe babies you can look at in, in, in a video fluoroscopic um, modified brain swallow study just because of their size. Um, so we have these arbitrary divisions between aspects of swallowing and we even have terminology which has reinforced that. So talking about phases of swallowing, so oral phase, pharyngeal phase, esophageal phase. But if there's phases, where does one start and the other? I mean, what does one stop and the other begin? So if it's oral phase, where's the, where's the true boundary for that? You know, someone might say, oh, it's whatever you can see in someone's mouth. Okay. Well, someone opens their mouth. I can actually see part of their pharynx. (laughs) I can see part you know, um, so what really, where really is the boundary? Um, and then pharyngeal where really is the boundary for that? Some people, um, might say that it's the cricopharyngeus or the PES or UES whatever your preferred terminology is but that is actually the essentially a sphincter right that's the boundary between the pharynx and the esophagus but it's dependent on pharyngeal metrics to open and then you have um, you know the esophagus which we really only assess there's only really one of the gold standards for the distal so the lower two-thirds part of it the upper one-third we're not quite exactly sure what it does yet. And so it's really not something that occurs in discrete phase. It's it's something that occurs over a continuum. And there's, you know, evidence to suggest that, or really not suggest to state that something in the esophagus can impact what someone does in their mouth or what occurs in the pharynx and vice versa. So um, I think that it's really important that we kind of think about things that way, educate ourselves as practicing clinicians, but also future generations of SLPs um, to kind of understand that. And then beyond that, swallowing continuum occurs within an aerodigestive tract, right? So swallowing is relative to respiration, what the diaphragm is doing. Part of our lower esophagus is dependent on the diaphragm and what it's doing. Um, So I think that Yes, essentially, we have to sometimes break things down to assess them. But if we don't, at some point, start to put things back together and look at things big picture, I think that we ultimately end up missing things.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this. And I think,
1: I mean, I think I've
2: practiced for, I don't know, maybe 10 years without even really understanding the role of the esophagus in swallowing. And like, how sad and insane is that, you know, but it was like I started taking, you know, I think Julie Huffman just opened up these guys to yes. like esophageal <laughs> dysphagia. And I, still, I I remember doing a podcast with her and I was like,
1: I didn't know any of this stuff. And there's another Buffalo <laughs> connection for you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. But I think, you know, I, I, I just think
2: I cannot believe that I practiced for so long just thinking of like the oral phase and the pharyngeal phase and didn't really know much about the esophageal phase. But then once sort of my eyes opened all of that. I love looking at it as a continuum and I, and it sort of made just so much more sense. It really just clicked at that. Like we can't look at these little standalone phases that
1: of course it impacts one another. exactly. And I mean, um, any, anyone who spent any time with me will be so sick of, of hearing me say this because it's I feel like it's my like catchphrase, but swallowing is a series of highly coordinated pressures at the end of the day. And those pressures have to be normalized mouth to stomach and sometimes if we are so sort of narrowly focused um, or, or maybe hyper focused on you know what's happening in the pharynx because we're concerned about aspiration we don't necessarily consider that maybe that's happening because of it in equal or abnormal pressures below the level of the corcopharyis or in, I mean it's just as much as it can be above the level of the um, of the larynx so I think you know I think Think that that it's important to kind of look at things in general. So, um, and Dr. Anna Miles has a paper from 2015, and it basically says that one third of their participants would have been inaccurately treated as having oral pharyngeal dysphagia had their Modified barium swallow study not included in esophageal visualization component, <gasps> which is huge, right? That means that we Easy, would potentially yeah. be doing our patients a disservice, delaying the proper treatment. And so really, you know, another thing that I'm very passionate about is that esophageal vis- visualization during the modified barium swallow study should essentially be standard of care. Can everyone do it? No, that's, you know, that's not the case, right? And so whenever we talk about having a protocol, it doesn't imply that there's some rigidity that every person, no matter what, has to go through everything. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we all have our, you know, clinical judgment that we need to to be using first and foremost, right? If something's not safe or appropriate for our patients, but whenever possible, um, getting just some idea of what's happening in the esophagus following a, you know, a few boluses through the um gastroesophageal junction, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
2: this is
1: awesome. <laughs> well, thanks, Eric. Um, and so one of the things too that made me consider or start considering um doing a PhD was that I had always Really readily accepted and, and been interested in taking graduate level clinicians when I was working clinically. And so I was their clinical supervisor and I really was just very excited and passionate about being part of their learning process. Um, and just relative to where I physically was in the country regionally at that point, there, there weren't any programs that were really setting these students up for success in medical placements. And so, you know, a lot of the students would be coming and hadn't had any familiarity with um, even just medical abbreviations. So going through a chart was an overwhelming process for them. And I think by the end, I ended up taking something like 12 students in the six and a half years that I was with that system. Um, So about two students a year. I think by the end, I kind of, you know, worked out a system in, in terms of ways to kind of get them to where they need to be um, or where I, I would like them to be at the time that they that they left. Um, and I think now just uh, working with students, I think it's important to recognize that if you're a student listening to this, oftentimes your expectations are much higher than our expectations of you in your clinical placements. And, um, and so just kind of to keep that in mind if, if you are a student. And at least in my experience. And so when I really thought about like what I want to do and what my um you know next job might look like after this postdoc, I really have always wanted to maintain a a teaching, you know, practice. And so currently I'm um teaching a best practices in swallowing disorder management course with Dr. Martin Harris and also with Kayla Graham. And it's just like such a wonderful group of people to work with. And I um, have said to Kayla, you know, separately, I said, I would want to take this class, right? And so like, yeah, it's exciting. This class. <laughs> it's exciting to be able to create content now, and classes where, you know, it's something like, gosh, I wish that I had this or I wish that I would, you know, had been able to give this to the students who are coming through my placement when I was working full time clinically. Um, and I really think that it's Really important that we invest in students early. Um, I think sometimes we don't give them the credit that they deserve. That like sometimes I've heard, at least in the past, you know, oh, that's too much information. Like, but what are they expected to do when they find themselves in a clinical placement? Then, and it's you know previously been thought that that's too much information, but now they need that information. Or what do they do when they find themselves? Having only one clinical experience, and then they find themselves in a job where that's essentially their their day to day. So I really am, you know, very motivated and very passionate to kind of help train and contribute to the knowledge for our future generations of SLPs to make it not necessarily easier, but have more tools to be better at this job.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I think that was so perfectly stated. Yes. Oh, better tools to do our job. I think that's really all that any SLP wants. You know, I don't think we expect to know everything, but we just want to know where to look for it and to know that we're supported and just really have a team of people to to help. Yeah,
1: exactly. And um, so at DRS this a couple of weeks ago, someone had a really insightful question um, and said kind of, what do you, what do you see the role of the SLP like in the future and I said, I think that, you know, I will, I will die on this hill of advocating for speech yes! pathologists to sit at every table possible, not at every table in medicine, right? Cause that's not, that's, that's not necessarily, you know, appropriate or, or needed, but there are lots of places where we are such an invaluable resource. And I've often thought to myself, especially, um, when I was, when I was working clinically, um, at M, at MUSC, I would th- think to myself, my goodness, like, If more people knew about what we could offer and what we bring to the table, we would be the busiest people in the hospital. (laughs) Not not really. That's an exaggeration, obviously. But I think that there are that we don't necessarily always do such a great job of advocating. or And sometimes, you know, it's it's hard for other professions to maybe be open to to kind of listening to what we might have to offer. Um, but as our field grows and moves forward, there's just more and more that we're able to contribute as part of an interdisciplinary team. And I think that it's just... It's just really exciting time to be part of our field.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like there's never a conversation that involves like the lungs or respiratory without a respiratory therapist exactly. present. Like why should there be conversations about eating, swallowing, any of this stuff without an SLP present? So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'll, I'll die on the hill with you, Erin. So. <laughs> we'll be up there together. <laughs> yes, awesome. All right. Um, Yeah, do you want to dive in and talk a little bit about your paper?
1: Yeah. So in 2021, we published a systematic review, and um, we it has to do essentially with esophageal visualization practices, and there's not a ton of papers out there, so it's just a handful of papers, but we essentially found that greater than half of the participants whose modified barium swallow studies included an esophageal visualization component, right? And so that that essentially means a lot of things. But more than half of them, almost 60% in fact, had some type of esophageal abnormality identified.
2: So a couple of things,
1: um, when we're talking about esophageal visualization. And that's my preferred term in terms of talking about what you do when you phys- when, you know, the, the fluoroscopy follows a bolus, um, from the pharynx all the way down through the gastroesophageal junction. It's not a screening unless you have a known sensitivity and specificity and There's just not enough out there currently to really support us calling it a screening. Um, I think a sweep makes it sound something that's more cursory, like, oh, we're just kind of doing it to, you know, to be complete um, versus we're kind of maybe getting some information, helping us potentially determine if there's a need for referral. So that's why I like to call it visualization. um, And that's a term that we use throughout the paper. and. Currently, I think that it's important to use a non-diagnostic esophageal visualization as as an addition, a standard of care, essentially, as we said before, during the modified barium swallow study. So why non-diagnostic? Well, there are speech pathologists, and I mean, m- myself, I'm specialty trained clinically and in research in esophageal disorders, um, but I don't consider myself to be an esophageal diagnostician. That requires a physician to, to confirm, um, similar to as if you saw something in the pharynx and it essentially wasn't describing the physiology. You might be able to, in your report, say that it's consistent with or that you suspect something, but you can't say that it's an outright diagnosis without the, the radiologist really confirming that that's, you know, what has, what you're seeing. Um, and the same goes for the esophagus. Now, There are definitely speech pathologists practicing in specialty clinics where they have, you know, an immense amount of training. I mean, Julie Huffman obviously is, you know, incredibly well-versed and knowledgeable about this. So I'm not saying that it's not something that's, you know, not possible, but it's just not what um, I would currently advocate for in like broad terms of what a speech pathologist does. There are speech pathologists trained in esophageal manometry there. I mean, so there are lots of skills um, that might be very dependent to your setting and to your job. And also there's differences in states and what's included and what's not included in scope of practice. So I think that that's um, always important to kind of keep in mind. But I think that esophageal visualization overall is a really helpful tool um, to be able to use, especially if you're getting patients um in an outpatient setting who might not have been um who may have been referred prior to receiving any other testing. You might actually help be able to help guide what the right first esophageal testing might be, right? So if you've got that specialty knowledge, you can you can say, oh, you know, you might consider starting with this. Um, especially if you have a good relationship with your referring, you know, providers. And then in the acute side, you know, lots of these patients who are coming down for modified variant swallow studies, they are aspirating, right? Or they don't have an efficient swallows. So there's a lot of residue and there's the risk for aspiration then. So you might be hard pressed to find providers who would be willing to send them for a full esophagram or for um, manometry, esophageal manometry, because those both of those tests not only involve swallowing liquids, but they involve swallowing liquids in the supine position. So laying down which we know is going to increase their aspiration risk, right? And depending on the population, right, if their primary impairment is pulmonary, then that's a hard stop. So sometimes, you know, just getting some sort of imaging of what's occurring in the esophagus, that might be the only way you're going to have any idea of what's happening below the level of the cricopharynx until that person, until they're cleared, essentially, to have dedicated esophageal testing. So it doesn't take the place of it by no means, but sometimes it's the only thing that you're going to get for a while.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is so interesting. (laughs) um, Sort of conversely, but extremely related. I was supposed to do a talk at ASHA last year, but we ended up having to withdraw the paper, but we resubmitted again for this year. But it's sort of exactly along the same lines. There's been a few papers that have come out in the last few years showing that by doing fees on like every patient, there was a lot of laryngeal diagnoses that were caught that wouldn't have been caught otherwise. And I think it's just so interesting. You know, obviously, in the most perfect world, SLPs would have access to all the tools that they need. But think of, you know, you said a third of them were missing, you know, esophageal components and think of you know, I can't remember what these papers said. I mean, it was hot. it was something like 40 to 50% of these people presented with, you know, laryngeal impairments too on, um, on fees. So it's, it's fascinating and, and I don't know how we're still having this argument that instrumentals are necessary, but
1: regardless, we are. So I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes things are slow to move forward and, you know, there's been, there's research that demonstrates that Research itself takes about 17 years on average to get into the field, which is wild. Um, I don't think that it should take that long. But sometimes there are reasons why things sort of move slowly. Things have to establish themselves and be proven. But when we're talking about instrumentation, that that's sort of a moot point, right? That's We understand the importance of that. So I think it really comes down to speech pathologists being able to advocate for themselves or having a manager to help advocate for them. To make the case of why they need this equipment, we might see the the cost of something like a Tim system or or fees. <laughs> you know, all the equipment that goes that um, goes into that. We might see the price tag on it and think, "Oh my goodness!" But if you work within a system, within a larger hospital system, or within a practice, those costs aren't necessarily that much. I mean, yes, in the real world, they are a lot, but um, in the grand scheme of things, they're more beneficial to your patients. You know, this, again, I'm not the first person. I won't be the last person. Is that You can't diagnose what you can't see. You also can't plan for treatment if you don't know what the pathophysiology is. There are things that you might recommend for treatment that could be essentially contraindicated if you don't really understand what the true nature is. And I worked for a couple of years in skilled nursing and long-term care. So I know what it's like to inherit patients where they might come to you on significantly altered textures or NPO with some type of alternate means of nutrition, and they never had any type of instrumentation. And what a great disservice not only to our patients but to the inheriting clinicians who now essentially have to send them out or have them someone come in and do a fees if we don't have the equipment at the at the um, at the facility. And you're essentially delaying the care for these patients. Um and how do you know for sure that those would be appropriate things to be doing, you know, for patients? And so I think that, you know, instrumentation, does every single person need instrumentation? I don't know. I don't I'm not gonna pretend to know the answer to that. But would more people benefit from having instrumentation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, right.
2: Awesome. You want to go into the importance of standardization?
1: So I think that standardization within our field is is really, really important. And having done a systematic review, it really was something that made it very clear to me that not only do we need to be using the same assessment tools, but we also need to be using the same terminology. So when you're doing something like a systematic review, you're essentially comparing something similar across multiple studies and you're taking all of that information and you're pooling all of the the sample or however many participants were in each um, were in each study and you're making your own sample and you're doing your own assessment of what your sample finds and it was just very clear as part of that experience that there's there were very likely things that the authors were talking about that were similar but I couldn't definitively say that those were the same things because they weren't using the same terminology. Um, and even so stimuli, right. So even using like a uh, standard verbar, um, if we're talking about modifies or a standard protocol um, for fees. Right. And so people might like in their own practice be using their own protocol and it could be standardized, right. It could be standardized across, Across their patients, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's validated and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's reliable. And that's really the strength of something like the MBS IMP. Um, there's an incredible amount of, of, you know, rigor and it has just been again statistically, you know, um, demonstrated just how valuable it is. And I think that it's, that it's really important um, to, to really move towards standardization in our field. In our practices as well um, in our diagnostic practices as well as in our in our terminology and that that goes for whether you're a researcher or a clinician, right? So yeah. getting things to be more similar and it doesn't necessarily going to mean that everyone is going to love what we end up with right (laughs) Right. so there's gonna have to be concessions (laughs) there's gonna have to be concessions you might prefer a certain term and say like oh well this is but if the field as a whole and it's not going to be down to one person it has to be the field as a whole if everyone can agree that it's not a bad right it's not bad it's not wrong it just someone might have a a preferred a different way of, of saying that but we, we should be using the same terms, right? When we're, when we're talking about things, when we're describing the physiology of swallowing and how it's impaired or how it's normal, we should be using, you know, standardized terms. Um, and then that way across the continuum of care, wherever you find yourself, whether you're that first person who steps into the room, you know, day one after someone has a stroke and you're in acute care to that clinician who sees them in acute, you know, inpatient rehab or skilled nursing, uh, wherever, home health care, long-term care, outpatient, it only makes us better at our job, and it only makes our patient care better um, if we use standardized testing assessments as well as um, standardized terminology. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah.
2: I know I feel like they've been working on standardization for fees for so long, and I'm, I'm not privy to where they are with that, but hopefully at some point. I'm not
1: sure either, yeah. but I think that that's definitely something that, that's important too, because a lot of times, depending on the setting, maybe the fees is the most appropriate or the only assessment that that person can have in a reasonable amount of time. And it's really important that we're all Again, you know, talking about the same things, using the same things, describing the same things, using the same, you know, rating scales, um, so that if someone else at a different facility does the same assessment, or even if they're doing fees versus modified, there are ways to kind of say, oh, was that the same thing that someone saw before? Was this Is this improved? Is this, you know, is, is this more deconditioned? It can only help our patients and it can only, um, you know, help us make better, better treatment plans as well. Right.
2: right. Awesome. Thank you,
1: Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. So where, what are you working on now? Where, what's the future hold for you? So there's, there, um, finishing a PhD and going a month later into a postdoc means this, that, that a lot of- Give yourself time. a lot of time for your brain to thought yeah, guess And, I and also moving from Charleston to <laughs> Chicago. Yeah, there was a lot yeah. of, a lot of downtime. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for the world. It's been, it's been a wonderful experience. Um, which just means that there's a lot of stuff that's on deck. So the three papers that essentially came out of my dissertation are um, in progress, and so um, all of that looks at instead of using outcomes of, of swallowing related to uh, you know penetration and aspiration or oral aspects or pharyngeal aspects. We use the mbs and sort of flip things on its head. So instead of thinking of things as top down, because that's how they occur physiologically, mouth to esophagus, we flipped it. And we use component 17, um, which for um, the MBSIMP is the esophageal clearance component. And we use that as our primary outcome measure. And we used it in a couple of different cohorts. So we used it in a lung transplant cohort, a stroke cohort, and an outpatient cohort. And pretty interesting findings, just um, in terms of using that. I'm going to keep yeah. you keep you waiting with bated breath. Yeah, today. please do <laughs> until it's published. But um, yeah, hopefully later this year, cool. all three should be out. And then um, I am in Dr. Martin Harris's lab. I'm learning how to do respiratory uh, swallow. Analysis. So we use um, a Biopac device to help get a signal that tells us what's essentially occurring in the, the, the thorax and the abdomen. And then there's a nasal signal. Um, and all of that gets uh, used to analyze how breathing and swallowing are coordinated. So right now at the, where I am at the VA doing Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Harris's research we're looking at breathing and swallowing analysis. So we're analyzing breathing and swallowing in a head and a cancer population, and then also introducing a novel respiratory swallow training program and seeing um, how that, if that improves the respiratory swallow coordination. So under normal circumstances, the ideal target is to swallow at mid to low lung volume during the expiratory phase. Um, And there are a lot of like biomechanical advantages for that so that when we inhale and our diaphragm moves in a downward motion, it actually pulls a little bit and provides some traction on the larynx and the and the esophagus. So things are moving in a more downward position. Um, And so if we are swallowing during our inhale, the structures that need to move upwards are starting from a lower starting point compared to if we swallow during the expiratory phase during our exhale, everything's a little bit more risen up essentially. So as we're just sitting here, breathing, our larynx is inherently moving, rising up and down a little bit. We don't feel it. It's so small. Um, But if these become patterns to write to more, um, more normally swallow during like inspiratory phase, then that sort of sets our, our patients up for a, less ideal swallow and so it's pretty exciting so i'm learning how to do the training and the analysis and then um i also work in dr Pandolfino's lab learning all about esophageal function and dysfunction um so all the esophageal disorders and then um also working with high resolution manometry so it's it's really great What an amazing
2: experience yeah and i feel like that that was what i was going to ask you if you are doing manometry with them
1: yeah i feel like a kid in a candy store so yeah. <laughs> being able to just learn, learn a whole lot. So it's really a, a great experience. And that's why I essentially consider myself, um, not essentially, I consider myself to be an aerodigestive researcher because we're really like looking at things more globally than just if the patient does or doesn't aspirate or does or doesn't have a normal swallow and really trying to, you know, take a step back and focus on the why. So, that's the, you know, at the end of the day, that's so important of understanding why. And it goes back to what we've talked about throughout, the, throughout our conversation here of, of really getting imaging, right? So getting some type of instrumental assessment to look at what's happening. So you understand the pathophysiology so you can attempt to figure out the why. Um, because some of our patients come to us and they don't have a diagnosis which supports the which supports them having dysphagia. And so sometimes we're a really important component of helping the interdisciplinary team figure out the why, right? Figure out what's happening um and what might be causing this dysphagia or causing this swallowing impairment in the in the patients that we see.
2: Yeah. Um let me ask you Erin, do you think what has your experience been so far with manometry? Like do you think that's something that will be more widespread for SLPs to use. You know, it seems like right now it's just only used like in the research setting, but so many people that use it say it does have such powerful information.
1: I think well, first of all, it's it's a very expensive tool. And so I would hope that with continued use and just a longer time on the market that it that it does get a little bit less expensive. It's an incredibly valuable tool because there are a lot of things that we see on endoscopy and there are a lot of things that we see on video fluoroscopy. And I'm now speaking mouth to stomach. Um, so whether we're talking about fees and an EGD or we're talking about a modified barium swallow study and something like a timed barium esophagram, there are things that we can interpret as as being relative to pressure. So hyperpressurization as in like something with spasm or hypopressurization, like weakness, right? So where we see residue. Um, But we can't quantify that. And we can't really confirm that that's occurring without something like manometry. There are several clinics um, who use pharyngeal manometry. Um, Some of them use pharyngeal esophageal manometry. So kind of looking at both pharyngeal manometry can be incredible. Both pharyngeal and esophageal manometry are incredible um, and valuable when we're talking about diagnostics. But pharyngeal manometry, at the very least, and we're talking about the SLP world, can really be incredibly useful as biofeedback. So the participants um, on manometry, essentially you get you get an image of the amount of pressure. And so higher pressures are like a more red color and weaker pressures are a more cool or like blue color. So if someone swallows and it looks blue, that's a very weak swallow. And sometimes, you know, you can give, you know, patients really simple instructions of make this orange or make this red, right? And have them see if they can just in their own way try and kind of figure out and then coach them, obviously like you know, something like an effortful swallow. And it's a really great way to also quantify improvement, right? So you have an actual value, um, a, a manometric value in terms of how much pressure is being generated. And you can, um, you can use that to, to also quantify someone's progress through therapy. Um, and if we're talking about in the esophagus, you know, I think that it's, Kind of fringe right now in terms of what speech pathologists do or don't do, and again, there's differences between states, and there's going to be differences also um, at everyone's institutions or or the practices where they work. Um, so it's always important to know before you even pursue something what is just even legally um, allowed. But I think that you know in the future that there's probably a role for swallowing therapy relative to esophageal disorders. I don't necessarily know what that is. I won't pretend to, <laughs> I won't pretend to, to know yet. Um, and I can't think of anyone better suited to do that than a speech pathologist. Um, there's also other things to consider that um, Dr. O'Rourke has a paper from uh, 2014 that demonstrated that some things that people do in the pharynx, so something like an effortful swallow um, and Dr. Teresa Lever also has uh, research to support this: something like an effortful swallow can actually improve the strength of your esophageal swallow versus something like the Mendelssohn maneuver. And this comes from Dr. O'Rourke's research. Something like the Mendelssohn maneuver, if not done appropriately, can actually inhibit esophageal peristalsis. So if we're not again looking at things as a swallowing continuum, we might be doing our patients a disservice where something in the pharynx might be helpful, but then we're inhibiting something in the esophagus. And so long term, I think that it would be great if, if we're looking at things more holistically, simultaneously too, right? Something like manometry and fluoroscopy together. Um, because every test also has its own strengths and weaknesses. Right. And indications and contraindications. Um, and so I don't ever feel like there's ever one thing that's the home run to, to the end all be all, you know, for our patients because the populations are so diverse. The settings in which we work are so incredibly varied. Um, sometimes it's not appropriate for someone to leave the floor to have an assessment or to have a, you know, catheter place, whether it's manometric or fees. And, um, and so I think that it's important to, at the very least, be aware of all the tools that are out there. You might not be able to use it. Um, I did my FEAST training, I think in like 2016. It was forever before I actually got, was able to use, you know, to use it. Um, but I was still interested and motivated to kind of learn and understand that that was what's out there. Um, and you can always refer to someone who, you know, you can always refer if you really feel like manometry is, is the thing that's missing. Let's say that the person said every other esophageal test under the sun and they didn't have that you know, I think that it's okay to refer to GI and maybe suggest something like that. Obviously, we're not providers, we're not ordering anything. Um, But I think, again, that's where the interdisciplinary team really, really comes back into focus. And the more that we're able to demonstrate our knowledge across the swallowing continuum about the aerodigestive tract, I think the more that we'll be able to find ourselves um, in higher demand and have seats at at every table.
2: Yeah, awesome. Awesome. I love it so much, Erin. Any, any final thoughts you want to share? This has been wonderful. I don't think so. It's been really great. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for sharing everything. And I think it's, it's, I, I love hearing people that have worked clinically and have gone on to the research world and, you know, I, that whole 17 years of getting research into practice, I think is what drives me to do this podcast continually because it's, yeah.
1: And I think that it's also so important. For people who do what you do because there is definitely an issue of getting our research of really, you know, there's lots and lots of quality research that people just don't know about or don't have access to. And so, um, you know, as a clinician and as a researcher and as a clinician scientist, I'm just so grateful for, for you essentially helping to disseminate a lot of this information and really get it out there in a, in a very digestible way. So thank you for yeah. what you do. Yeah.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Erin. This has been great. Absolutely. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills, and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.